What we're going to do this quarter is we're going to talk about all the conversations I've had with y'all over the last two and a half years. And I don't mean in the sense I'm going to tell people stories or anything like that. I'm not going to do it at all. But what I'm going to talk about is just the questions I've heard for two and a half years over coffee at Phil's. And I thought that would be an interesting series, something to do, because I I began to kind of coalesce a a, a similar set of issues that seem to come up all the time. And they're issues also for me, not just for y'all. And, uh, and so this quarter is going to be a series of questions um, that's kind of has come together over two and a half years. And, um, and if you think, I feel like Britain is talking about a conversation we had, you're probably right. Because um, that really is where this series is kind of its root is. And so the first question tonight, what I want to talk about is something, uh, and you can call it, I'm calling the series Questions We Ask. That was my creative name. Um, the series tonight is, what do I do with the Bible? And we can't say everything about Scripture, and we can't say everything about the Bible, but over uh, two and a half years here, four years at South Carolina, um, over and over, myself included, we struggle with, how do I understand the Bible? Am I supposed to be reading the Bible? I don't like the Bible. Is the Bible trustworthy? I feel guilty about not reading it. I'm not sure that I can believe it. We kind of have all this, all have these collection of questions and frustrations about trying to figure out what is this thing and what do we do with it. And so what I want to do tonight, I'm actually just going to read um, uh, verses 7 through 11 in Psalm 19, but I'm going to kind of be jumping around Scripture and all the different places that it actually talks about itself. But these are these couple of verses in Psalm 19 um, are reflections on Scripture, on the Word of the Lord. And so we'll start there, and then we'll talk about why is the Bible frustrating and what can we do with it. So this is the Word of the Lord. The law of the Lord is perfect, and it revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider you speaking to us, I pray, dear God, for your Holy Spirit to move and to work in us. Uh, In the places we're confronted, we're struggling, I pray that we would hear your word, that we would hear things about your word, and we would learn and grow, and we would find that this book is a feast for us that gives us life in a way that nothing else can give us life. So draw us to your word, attract us to your word, Teach us, dear God, be with us. In your name we pray, amen. So why is the Bible frustrating? I'm going to jump right in. It's hard to read. It's bizarre. Uh, It's hard to read it consistently. Uh, It's offensive at times. It seems to be really inconsistent. Uh, And most of all, maybe more than anything else, it doesn't seem to be applicable. Right? How do we put it into practice? And for that reason, it seems really boring. And I can't, we can't say everything about Scripture, and please call me, talk to me afterwards. I'm going to prompt probably a lot of questions and not answer all of them. And I would love 
to go to Phil's or, or we, could, we could do Starbucks. Preferably Phil's and, like, and talk about any questions you have. This is what I do. I love it. And I actually entertain the questions y'all ask as well. In other words, they're not just questions I answer for you. They're questions I grapple with as well. But we can't say everything, but I want to start with this. And we'll start at the very first point, and I think maybe this is a point uh, everybody's felt more people are frustrated with than others. Um, and the first thing is this. Maybe the Bible's frustrating because there are inconsistencies in it and because at times we disagree with it. I won't talk about this long, but I, I want to start there because I think for some people, you're just not even sure you can believe it because there's radical inconsistencies in it. And that's legitimate to feel that and to question that. And, and an example of this, I'm not going to go into all of them, but I want to give you an example uh, of this is, you know, what I hear often is, how do you reconcile the God of the Old Testament with the God of the New Testament? Right? You have this, this national God that seems to author a lot of violence in the Old Testament, and you have this temple worship, and you have these weird rules about not eating shellfish and not wearing shirts that are, have blended fabrics, like both cotton and wool in them or something like that. And then you have this God of the New Testament that's like Jesus, the cross, forgiveness, and mercy. And a question we often have, and I hear a lot, and I struggle with as well, is... Um, it seems really inconsistent. Like, how can, how can you believe something so radically inconsistent? And I'll tell you something first that's a little bit hard to believe, but it's actually true. That charge is actually most often argued by popular thinkers and not scholars. In other words, by people who are not truly biblical scholars. And I'm not talking about biblical scholars that are Christians. Both Christian and non-Christian biblical scholars actually rarely level this charge against Scripture. But popular thinkers with less scholarly and academic education on the Scripture often level that charge. And the reason why you actually don't hear scholars talk about this issue very much is actually because even the ones that don't believe the Bible recognize that a close and consistent and holistic reading of Scripture shows very clearly one consistent story that develops. And so, in short, questions uh, like, why don't you still do sacrifice today? Or why don't you, how come you do eat shellfish today? Or you do wear blended shirts, which are prohibited in the Old Testament. Well, actually, those questions have been adequately answered and scholarly fields for over 2,000 years now. And that's why scholars aren't talking about those kind of questions anymore. Uh, if you want answers, I can point you to scholarly work regarding that, uh, that the perceived inconsistency, it actually doesn't exist. And here's a brief framework, a picture of how the inconsistency actually doesn't exist the way we think it does. What The basic idea is the story is, the Bible is a story that develops. God remains the same, but He is actually telling a story. He's un- his, the Bible is the unfolding of His redemptive plan. And in development, and in pedagogy, in other words, teaching people through development, this happens in all fields. You use teaching tools in early stages that you don't use in later stages. This is true in everybody's act of being educated about anything. There are teaching tools that occur in early stages that you would never use in later stages. And so the temple system, what happened in the temple system and the ritual uh, sacrifices and things like that, what God was doing is he was creating theological muscle memory. He was creating theological muscle memory, right? Sin separates us from God. Sacrifice has to happen for us to be reconnected. 
and rejoicing happens after that. And he's creating muscle memory in the, in the lives of his people so that when the real and true sacrificial lamb comes, they'll recognize him because they'll have that muscle memory. And so when the true and, and real sacrificial lamb, when Jesus, the one whose, sin actually does, whose life actually does um, atone for our sins, comes, there's no reason to go back to the temple system. And when you arrive at the place that a sign has directed you, you don't need signs anymore. Right? And that's actually one of the biggest points the New Testament writers make all throughout the New Testament. That's the basic argument of the entire letter of Hebrews, and it's most of the argument of the entire letter of Galatians. This is what Paul says in Galatians 3.24. He addresses the ceremonial and ritual law, and he says this, So then the law was, was our guardian. It was a teacher until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now faith has come and we're no longer under the ceremonial or the ritual law. And so that actually means you would be denying the Christian faith of the Bible if you went back and practiced the ceremonial and ritual law of the Old Testament. So the Bible, it's actually not inconsistent in the way we often think it is. And it actually answers that question very forthrightly in the Old Testament. I mean, in the in the New Testament, and the Book of Hebrews is exclusively about that issue. But another thing we don't like about it, if if inconsistency doesn't bug you, maybe it does. But it also is the Bible confronts modern sensibilities. It comes in and says things about living and about life and about morality and ethics. And it confronts our materialism and it confronts pride and it confronts sexuality and dishonesty. It confronts jealousy. And for many of us, we rarely struggle with how it actually confronts us. We don't actually want it to get into our life and jack with us. Um, because that's hard. Is to, is to let the Bible actually say what it means to you and then have to deal with it. Right? And, and the reality is, is God's not just trying to confront us on one or two things. He's not trying... Christianity is not something for augmenting your life. He's not trying to add something... God's purpose is actually to turn your life upside down and rebuild it again. And so what we'd rather not do is we'd rather not hear him say things like, love your enemy. We want to hear that phrase and then we want to explain away how the fact that it doesn't apply to us in this situation because God doesn't understand my roommate or my parents. We don't want to hear the call to forgive. Because forgiveness is really, really hard. And you know what's awesome? Hating people. And gossiping about people. And cutting off relationships to make people pay for it. Right? Things like go to church. We hate that. Gather with the saints. Tell the truth. Sex is for marriage. The Bible says all kinds of things that we don't like. And I want to say two things about that. The first is this. The way... Our, our kind of ethical model, our ethical model for the day, the way we determine what's right for us... It's simply this. The way most people think what's right and what's wrong is this. If I want it and it doesn't clearly harm anybody, it is therefore right for me. And that's how we go about our lives. If I want it, if I have strong desires for this or to do this, and it's not clear that it hurts anyone, then it's okay or it's good. And actually what we're articulating is, is a much more simple version of Frederick Nietzsche's perspectivalism. 
And Friedrich Nietzsche wasn't unique or original when he started saying, what's right is what's right for you within your limited, you know, exclusive, unique Britain perspective. Actually, 3,000 years before Nietzsche, the book of Judges was talking about the same thing. He didn't come up with anything new. Judges 21 25 actually describes sin and says this is what the sin of the nation of Israel was. Everybody did what they thought was right for them. And to our modern ears, we hear that language and we actually think that's a good thing, right? You're supposed to do what's right for you. Maybe you've said that to friends. Maybe friends have said it to you. And what's interesting is in saying, well, what you should really do in this situation is you need to do what's right for you. You need to seek out what's right for you. Our goal in offering or receiving that advice is peace, right? We think, so that you can be happy. Do what's right for you. Now, let's step back for a second and examine that kind of advice or that kind of ethical system. Right? We think, if everyone does what's right for them, this is what we think, no one will be upset The supreme and most effective recipe for conflict is if everyone does whatever they want. If we are unbounded, if if we give credibility and ethical positive value to all of our desires, that is how you produce enduring terrible conflict. And so anyone who offers that kind of advice, you need to do what's right for you, Every single person that offers that advice will betray themselves when they parent. I've said this before. Because you know what you will never do? You'll never say that to your child. Because your child's going to want to do crazy things and you're going to tell them no. And guess what? The minute you tell your child no, you've betrayed your ethical system. You've become inconsistent. Even the most avid proponents will betray themselves when they parent. So the Bible is going to push back on us. We should expect it to. And if God never actually disagreed with us, that's an extremely dangerous place to be because the birthplace of oppression, the birthplace of where people hurt people, is when you think God and I agree on everything and He never disagrees with me. Because the second you believe that, you believe... God and I agree on everything. He doesn't disagree with me. He's not allowed to disagree with me. Where the Bible says something different to what I think or believe, I cut that out and I craft a God that agrees with me. You know what that means? That means you believe you're right all the time. And if you believe you're right all the time, that means you have to blame what's wrong on the world on everybody else. That is where oppression happens, is when people begin to believe they're never wrong. When they're not willing to let their desires be confronted by things like Scripture. And so, instead of like Alexander Solzhenitsyn says, which is right in line with Scripture, he says the path between, the line between good and evil doesn't reside between classes or, or, uh, or, or different types of people. The line between good and evil runs right down the heart of every man and woman. Which means we actually need a Bible, which is what Hebrews 4.12 says is a sword that cuts us because we need things cut away in us because there's evil in us, the second you stop believing that and start crafting a God that never disagrees with your sensibilities, you become an oppressor. And if you want to see this, just go read any blog written by Christians and non-Christians about politics. Right? Those are some of the most oppressive people. I'm being oppressive now, but I'm a little self-righteous about the blog thing because I don't have one. Nobody wants to read my thoughts. But... (laughs) The Bible has to disagree with us. 
We have to have something disagreeing with us. And if not, terrible things will happen. We have to believe that there's evil in all of us. The second you believe there's evil in everybody else, but not you, you become a very dangerous person. And it's much better news, actually, and gives you more hope to believe that there's evil in all of us. So, there's the Bible for you. Let it, con- it confronts us. It seems inconsistent, but I don't think it is. But also, lastly, before we get into the, the, the kind of Psalm 19, and I'll say this briefly... I think for a lot of us, the biggest struggle is it's boring and we don't know how to apply it. And when I say boring, it's not simply an issue of entertainment, that we're not entertained by it, because the content of Scripture can't be called, it it can't actually be called boring. I mean, you all have read stuff about Darren Aronofsky's film of Noah. He actually gets that, like, the stories of the Bible are actually insanely action-oriented. It is an epic story. So it's not boring in the sense that it's not entertaining, it's boring in the sense that we don't know how it's going to have impact on our day. We're not convinced if I read this periodically, it's going to change anything. Because our time is ordered, and, we, and we'll give time to Scripture if we perceive that it meets immediate needs, but we won't give time to anything that doesn't meet immediate needs. So our daily time is always taken up by what we think is pressing and will move us forward in life. You know that doing your homework will move you forward to the next day. You're not sure how reading Deuteronomy is going to advance your agenda for the day. Therefore, it feels boring when you open it up. I understand that. I feel that as well. Deuteronomy is bizarre. Numbers is even worse. I don't know how like Jewish census numbers are going to change our life, but somehow God thinks they should. But I'm going to say this. All of these points that I brought up just now resonate with me. Um, I carry the tension of these points in my own heart, in my own mind, in my own experience. And what I want to briefly do now is put out just a few thoughts about Scripture that I hope just kind of like are a little bit of a taste that make you want to feast on the Bible a little bit more. And the first thing I want to say is give you an understanding. If someone says, what is the Bible? I'm going to give you a simple definition of that. Here's a simple definition for what is Scripture. It's God's authoritative narrative. Three words, God's authoritative narrative. It's intended to be an authoritative account or story of reality. That doesn't mean it's supposed to be authoritative about chemistry or physics or biology. But it is an authoritative account of the big meta questions. Who is God? What is man? And what is the purpose of existence? And the word authority has kind of fallen into ill repute. It's not a cool word right now. Um, And so I want to talk about that because... You know, I've remarked on this before. Several years ago, Steve Jobs gave an epic speech at Stanford. And, uh, and in that, his big point that people like to quote is, don't follow anyone's dogma. And he's bucking against the issue of authority, right? Don't let authorities tell you how to live. Now, my question for you is, when you take that advice, what are you doing? You're betraying Steve Jobs because you're following his dogma. Do you get that? The Western kind of liberal controlling narrative, authoritative narrative, kind of Western liberalism, I'm using liberalism in a broad term to actually describe Western Europeans, is this. Follow your dreams and you will be happy. Follow your heart and you will be happy. And what I want you to see is that is a life that is lived under an authoritative narrative. 
That's a Western authoritative narrative. You're not free from authority when you embrace that story. You're very much submitting to another authoritative narrative that's maybe different from Eastern narratives or narratives from the Southern Hemisphere and other cultures. You're actually uh, acting exactly like someone controlled by commonplace Western liberal middle and upper class narratives. And see, for that reason, I'll make this point. The choice is not whether or not you're going to live under authority or without authority. The choice is really which authoritative narrative will you choose. Because you will choose one, and you are living according to one. We all are. So when I say authority, I want you to think this, controlling narrative. What is my controlling narrative? What is the story I believe about my life? That's your authority. And it's the thing you consult to make sense of your experience and to make decisions with. What's your controlling narrative? You have one. Here's an example of how a controlling narrative orients everybody's lives. This past week when we were on the Indian Reservation, I talked to a student, uh, a non-Stanford student from another school, and they were asking questions about, they were trying to decide what they want to do for their summer job. And so what I did is I asked her questions about her controlling narrative. I said, what's important to you? She said, success. Well, what do you mean by success? Success in my field. What is your field? Journalism. What kind of journalism do you want to do? She wants to do like something on the Internet. And I said, how important is that to you? She said, it's everything. And I said, why? She said, because if I'm successful, I'm valid as a person. It's everything. That's a controlling narrative. And so she's trying to judge whether or not to do an internship in journalism or to work at the Indian Reservation for the summer. And so I told her, I said, if you serve Indians, it will not help you be successful in your field. But it will. It will make your heart tender. It will actually make you tender and strong at the same time in a way that very few things can. You're going to sacrifice uh, some chances to be successful, but you will be a stronger person. You will be a more virtuous person. You will be a kinder person, and you will be a wiser person. And you know what she said? That sounds good, but what I want is to be successful. She had a narrative. She had a story, a way she conceived of where happiness comes from in life. Right? I'd be, uh, whatever it is, it's, we all have this collection of things, this picture of the good life, and that's what we're aiming for, and that's our controlling narrative, and we make all our decisions and interpret all of our experiences in light of that controlling narrative. I have to have romance. I have to have exciting experiences. I have to have fame, money, recognition, achievement, the right type of body. We all have a controlling narrative, and I'd love to sit down with you and ask you questions if, you want, if you're like, I don't know what's driving me. I'll ask you questions to help you get there. But let's go to Phil's again, right? I'm looking for just excuses to go to Phil's. And what the Bible offers is a bigger and better and the truer story. It's God's controlling narrative. And that's what I mean, and that's what theologians mean when they say the Bible is authoritative. And it's what David means when he says, uh, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. What God is doing when we read and we meditate and we consider Scripture, His intention is to confront your narrative and to confront my narrative, poke holes in our narratives, and show that this is the one true controlling story. 
that this actually makes sense of life better than all of the stories we're trying to tell. That's what Paul's claim in 2 Timothy 3.16 when he says, All scriptures breathed out by God. It's God's story. It's His authoritative telling of reality. And it's good for teaching and for reproof and for correcting us and for training us to live rightly so that the person of God may be competent at being human. Equipped for every good work. This is the controlling narrative that teaches us how to navigate life. This is the psalmist's point. The testimony of the Lord is sure and makes wise the simple. The simple, according to Scripture, is not unintelligent people. It's not people who lack education. The simple are people who are not reflective enough to understand their only their uh, controlling narrative. And for that reason, a poor farmer in Kenya may actually be far wiser than an extremely educated Stanford grad student because a farmer in Kenya may actually understand his place in the world. And a Stanford grad student might have just accepted narratives people had handed to him all his life and just seeking how to succeed. I've got to succeed. I don't even know why. I don't know where this leads. I'm not sure it gives me life, but I just accepted it. It has nothing to do with education. It has everything to do with your ability to step back and understand why. And in that sense, the act of encountering Scripture is like putting on glasses for the first time. And what it does is it just puts reality into focus. And you begin to understand. You begin to understand. And now I understand why I long for glory and joy. I was made for it in God's image. I now understand why I've gotten everything I want by getting into Stanford and killing it, and I'm still not happy. That actually I can't get glory and joy from achievement and success. It must have another place, and I can't ask that of Stanford anymore. And why only God can actually give me glory and joy. I understand what's wrong with the world. That actually what's wrong with the world kind of begins in my heart. A twistedness in here. I understand why I can't get rid of it. Why I keep trying to change myself and think better of myself, but it stays there. And maybe only grace is the only option for dealing with it. I understand how the grace of Jesus, without it, all of life is going to feel like slavery. That without the grace of Jesus, all of life is going to be, feel like working to feel accepted. All of a sudden, reality comes into focus. The Bible is God's authoritative account of the real and true controlling narrative. Secondly, it also it actually it actually gives life. It doesn't just teach us about reality. It also gives life. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The Bible is going to feel like food the more you start reading it. And you're going to feel alive the more you start reading it. And you know what's exhausting? This is why. You know what's exhausting and leaves you empty? Is working and living and seeking really hard, but not knowing why. Working hard, but not knowing why, leaves you very empty and frustrated to the point where one of two things is going to happen. Either you actually embrace empty life and become defined by consumerism and perfectionism, work, 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 buy, 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 and I'll just distract myself until I die. Or you just stop working because you can't attach meaning to your work anymore. Last week, at the, on the Indian Reservation, we worked physically, manual labor, harder than I've worked in a long time. We, just didn't, we, we didn't stop doing anything until late at night. And we worked with a lot of emotional energy with the orphans and, and the other kids there. And Teddy and I were talking about it on Monday morning. Like, it was a long, hard week. And, and we were both like, you know what? I'm really tired, but I'm really full and I'm really energized. 
We're actually more physically weary than we've been in a long time, but feel more alive and energized than we have in a while. This is why. is because all of our work was bathed in the purposes of Scripture. We knew why we were doing everything we were doing, and everything we were doing was attached to supreme purpose. And so even though we were physically exhausted, we were alive and energized. Because the controlling narrative of Scripture was there all along informing what we were doing. And after a week of hard work, we're full and not empty. Because the Bible explained the purpose of our hard work. It's actually rarely true, sometimes true, but it's actually rarely true that's what, that the thing that's making your soul tired is that you're working too much. More often, the reason your heart and your soul is weary of your work is because you actually don't know why you're doing it anymore. And you need food. And the Bible is food. The Bible gives purpose and meaning to who you are and to what you're doing because it connects everything to God's overarching purpose of redemption. So those are some thoughts about Scripture, really just verse 7 in Psalm 19. And so what I want to close with is real uh, is a couple of really practical points. Okay, what do I do now if I'm going to try to read the Bible or encounter it in any meaningful way? First thing is this, expect to work. Y'all are Stanford students, which is awesome, and y'all love work, which is good. So expect to work hard when you read Scripture. Uh, the more labor and study and meditation you put into Scripture, the more you're going to understand and live wisely into the experiences of life around you and understand the experiences inside of you. And in a way to think about it is this. When Elizabeth and I moved here three years ago, one of the first things we wanted to do is go up to wine country and take a wine tour, which is awesome, and y'all should do that. And I don't know how to drink wine. I still don't know very well. But when we took a wine tour, it was really cool because they have a sommelier, a wine expert, that teaches you how to taste wine. And so you would take these little sips, and they would tell you what you're tasting. And it was really cool because they would tell you where different flavors were hitting your tongue. And all of a sudden, the very same wine I'd sipped two sips earlier and didn't understand came alive. Drinking the exact same wine, but came alive and affected me in a really different way as I began to understand the flavor palette and how all the tasting, all the taste buds work on our tongue and there are different zones and different regions and that they're creating this experience across your tongue and all the way down your throat. It's amazing. Two minutes ago, I sipped this wine. Exact same wine. Nothing about the wine changed. And it wasn't, I was just like, okay, I don't know, Cabernet, okay, right? Two-minute lecture from the sommelier, drank the exact same wine and had a profound experience. You learn some things about Jesus. You learn some things about God. The more you begin to put together the nuances and the understanding of who God is and what He thought for creation, the more rich Scripture is going to be for you. Expect to work. It's going to take time. Secondly, Expect to work. It's not, it, it, I'm not going to promise you that reading the Bible is easy. Um, secondly, read it in community. Encounter the Bible in community. There are actually very few instances in Scripture. There are, there are several, but not too many. Uh, le- definitely the minority of instances in Scripture where people actually engage God's Word by themselves. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying more often than not in Scripture, people engage God's Word 
as a community. The prophets, the prophecies are written for Israel and spoken to Israel corporately. All of the psalms were sung together. Paul's letters were written to the churches. The first five books of the Bible, Moses, were read before all of Israel. Most of the time in the Bible, when people actually deal with it and work through it and try to figure out what it means, they do it with others. That doesn't mean don't read the Bible alone. I think you absolutely should, and you should do it often. Even when you do it alone, do it with others. What I mean by that is you now have 2,000 years of people reflecting on Scripture. So when you read it alone, read it with Charles Spurgeon and read it with Jonathan Edwards and read it with Calvin and Augustine and John Piper and Tim Keller and the Gospel Coalition blog and D.A. Carson and N.T. Wright. I'll tell you people to read it with. But we did Leviticus last year in RUF and after that series, the comment I heard most often all throughout that quarter was, that's really interesting, I would have never been able to understand Leviticus on my own. And people said that all quarter long. And what I said every time is, then never read Leviticus alone. Read it with God's people. When Israel received the Levitical law, they received it together and worked out God's intention. When I read Leviticus, I didn't read it alone. When I read Psalm 19, I didn't read it alone. Expect to work hard. Encounter Scripture with people. Thirdly, think and meditate. Think and meditate. I'm stealing this straight from Tim Keller, but that's okay. He actually stole it from Catholics in the Counter-Reformation. Didn't see that one coming, did you? (laughs) Thinking, by that he means this. Thinking is the process of assigning meaning to statements. So thinking is the process of, here's a statement, the Bible said something, here's what it means. You need to do that. Here's an example. God is holy. What does that mean? It means He's perfect means he's righteous. means he's wholly other. You have to think, right? We don't, we're not entirely sure what the term holy means, so we've got to think about it and begin to define it. So thinking is, a, is assigning an explanation to words. But don't stop there. Meditate. Psalm 1, 1 through 3 actually says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. In other words, doesn't abide to foolish and controlling narratives. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on God's word, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. This call to meditating on Scripture. And what meditating is, is this. I hope I can communicate this well. It's using sensory language in your thought process. This is what I mean. Meditating is actually bringing the explanation or your thoughts or your thinking and the, into, the, into uh, bringing your thinking into contact with your heart. So when you read God is holy, you've defined it. He's righteous, he's pure, he's separate. And now, besides just explaining it, you start to feel it. And you articulate words of feeling. So you say, God is holy, so he's righteous. And he's perfect and he's pure. Now assign some sensory language to that. That's scary to me. That feels good, but it also unnerves me. So you begin to experience the text, not just explain the text. It's the process of actually letting your heart sense and respond to the things that you're trying to explain with your thinking. 
And when you start meditating, not just thinking but also meditating, you'll find that your heart's activated and you're actually interpersonally doing business with God. And you'll sense that He's with you, that He's holding you, that you're maybe at times you're even fighting with Him, but you'll sense that you're safe in Him. You'll begin to feel a distaste for your sin. You'll begin to feel and experience the loveliness of the grace of Jesus. You won't just think these things. You'll begin to experience these things. So think. Try to explain the text. Meditate on it. Let your heart react to it. And react with sensory language. Say with your heart how the things in Scripture make you feel. Expect to work. Read it in community. Think and meditate. I'll close really briefly with this. Think and meditate through these four questions. I think they're on the form, which I don't know, didn't really come out today because we had printing issues. But this, when you read the Bible, open it up and just say, what does it say about God? What does it say about man? What does it say about what's wrong? What does it say about a solution? What does it say about God? What does it say about man? What does it say about what's wrong? What does it say about a solution? And then this is actually the fifth question you also have to ask. How would I be different if I believed these things? And actually, at 7.50, I intentionally only prepared for about four or five minutes. I just flipped open the Bible in the middle to Jeremiah 17. This is honestly 7.50. I was like, all right, I'm just going to do that in front of y'all. And I flipped it open to Jeremiah 17 and read verses 5, and, uh, five through 8. So this is like an... Ex- I'm just going to like live out those four questions right in front of you, or those five questions. And I just read Jeremiah as a prophet, and it says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He's like a planted tree by water, which is interesting. That's Psalm 1, right? Jeremiah. Or he's seen connections. Um, And sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes, for its leaf remains green. And he's not anxious in the year of the drought, and and he does not cease to bear fruit. What does this teach us about God? That God sustains. If you're rooted in God, you will survive. doesn't promise that bad circumstances won't come, right? It says, no, droughts still come, but in God you'll remain green, you'll remain fruit-bearing. So we know God is safe and stabilizing. What does it say about man? It says, two, it says uh, one thing. We have to trust in something. We either trust in God's strength, we'll trust in man's strength. But by nature, we'll choose something to trust in. What does it say about what's wrong? Our tendency to trust man and not God. Right? I can manage. I can trust my own strength. I can get life turned around. I can get it fixed. I can make stability happen for me. I can trust in my own strength. Right? What does it say about the solution? The solution is trust in the Lord. Because God is steady. Won't prevent difficult circumstances, but He will sustain you in difficult circumstances. Right? If I believed all of this, how would it change me? If we would give less time to the idolatry of work and busyness, and we'd give more time to hearing our Father's words. Because how do you get to know somebody? 
You talk to Him. So we would give time to meditating, which is reflecting our thoughts back to God, and listening, which is reading Scripture. So that we can get to know Him, so that we can be rooted in Him and not our own strength. This is good news. This is water for our souls. This is life-giving. We would respond. If, if we believed this, we'd say, Thank you, Lord, because I am tired of trying to survive on my own. Thank you that the drought doesn't, the drought doesn't overwhelm me. Praise God that in spite of difficult circumstances, I will be okay because you are my strength. How would you, believe, how would you be different if you believed Jeremiah 17, 5 through 8? How would you be different tomorrow? Tomorrow you'd be a little less anxious. Doesn't that sound good? You'd be a little bit more prayerful. You'd be a little bit more confident. You'd actually be kinder and happier and less rushed. Wouldn't that be great? Can you step back for a moment and see that that kind of fruit, the kind of fruit that God intends to grow in you, just humility and confidence and joy and security and rest and confession and kindness, can you step back for a moment and see... That's far closer to a story of flourishing and joy and happiness. There's a much richer humanity in that kind of life than simply finally getting your 4.0 and your six-pack abs. So which narrative are you going to allow to control you? Don't you want a better story than a 4.0? It's a lame story. You know what? A great startup is a lame story. I'm not saying those things are bad. They're just bad if that's where your hope is. Let's pray.